Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Final words carry weight. Final words carry weight. When someone knows their time is short, their final words will take on some kind of special meaning. Think about one famous example from pop culture. Right? Star Wars Episode Six, Return of the Jedi. Not many fans, just a few. Right? You, have, you have that scene, that final confrontation between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, and spoiler alert, Vader is Luke's father, in case you didn't know that. Um, Luke spares Vader's life, but then Vader sacrifices himself in order to save his son Luke from the evil emperor. So in that scene, as explosions rock the massive Death Star all around them, uh, Vader fixates his gaze on his son Luke the son that he saved, and he says, Luke, help me take off this mask. And then Luke helps him remove the mask that has covered his father's face for decades. And then underneath the mask, you see the pale, scarred face of Anakin Skywalker. And then he says, tell your sister you were right about me. And then his focus remains peacefully, steadfast on his son as he gently repeats the phrase to Luke, now go, my son, leave me. Go, my son, leave me. See, his final words carried weight. They were proof of his identity. They were evidence of his eventual redemption. Final words carry weight. It is also true in history. On a stormy Wednesday evening in April 1968, nearly 3,000 people jammed into Mason Temple in Tennessee to hear what would become some of the final words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., because the next day, he would be assassinated. And when you hear his speech, you, you hear the words of a man who kind of senses his own death is imminent, and, and what a powerful uh, evening that was. See, the threats against his life had accelerated, so, so he knew uh, he might be in trouble, but that very evening, he's kind of finding himself in a place he doesn't want to be. He, he's finding himself being forced to speak. He doesn't really want to speak. He just wants a rest. He's exhausted. He's got a sore throat. He's got a fever, and he's just in a state of exhaustion and depression. Um, nevertheless, he enters the pulpit that night around 10 o'clock in the evening, and he's competing with noise from heavy rainfall and thunder and banging shutters, and King Jr.'s voice rang out for over 40 minutes. And then toward the end of his speech, he departs from whatever remarks that he had prepared, and the words that he speaks next would be 
immortalized as eerily prophetic given the tragedy to come the next day. It's as if he's speaking the words of his own eulogy. Let's take a quick look. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Final words carry weight. What about you? If you knew or if you suspected that your, your own death was right around the corner, what would your final words be? Who would you call? What would you say? What would you tell them? Who would you send those apology texts to, those I love you texts, or those goodbye messages? What would your final words be? Well, let's journey a little bit back in time to Rome around... 66 AD. The emperor is Nero. Nero's that sadistic, murderous, paranoid man. A fire had recently burnt and devastated half of Rome, so what Nero did was he directed his fury toward the Christians. He, started, uh, he decided it was best to blame the Christians for starting the fire, and he began arresting them and crucifying them, using them as, as human torches and, um, and tormenting them. So that's the context, around 66 AD. And there, in that city, in Rome, in a stinky, rotten cell, deep in a Roman dungeon, in chains, is the Apostle Paul. He realizes his execution is likely around the corner. Most of his friends had abandoned him. And few want to associate with him because they fear for their own lives. So he's isolated He's exhausted. He's afflicted. So in this state, Paul pours himself out one final time, and this time through what we know as the book of 2 Timothy in our New Testaments, the book of 2 Timothy. It's in this book where we explore the weighty final words of Paul. His final words aren't about himself, though. Right? Instead, he's divinely inspired to exhort and encourage the younger pastor, Timothy. Despite the shadow of death that was looming for the aged and, and scarred apostle, his letter to his son in the faith 
overflows with encouragement. In 2 Timothy, you see Paul reminding Timothy of all the spiritual resources that are his. And you see all of his charges to Timothy to stay faithful to the gospel. In essence, Paul uses his final words to pass to Timothy the baton of ministry. So Paul's final words carry weight. So this morning, as we jump into the first chapter of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we're starting our new sermon series that we're calling Pass the Baton, because it's in this first chapter where Paul reminds Timothy and us that in Christ, you can face affliction with courage. That's the entire summary of 2 Timothy chapter 1. In Christ, you can face affliction with courage. So put yourself there. You can imagine that Paul, as he's sitting in that prison cell, he must be reflecting on all the years of his life, all the years of his hardship, everything that he endured, his missionary journeys that resulted in beatings and prison and persecution, then the snake bites, then the shipwrecks and the stonings that he suffered. And now he finds himself yet again imprisoned, this time in Rome. And this time he's abandoned by those who were once closest to him. So you'd expect, when you read 2 Timothy, you'd expect to read words of a desperate man, of a man in desperation. But instead of despair, what you see is Paul displaying courage. Instead of shame, instead of regret, he points to God's forgiveness and God's faithfulness. So Paul begins his last will and testament by reminding Timothy, by reminding you that in Christ you can face affliction with courage. In Christ, God gives you an abundance of spiritual blessings. In Christ, God unleashes in you all of his heavenly resources. So in the opening chapter of this letter, you can see Paul's words, uh, in his words, at least four of the blessings of, uh, of the Christian faith, four spiritual blessings that belong to the Christians. These are four things that Timothy needed to be reminded of as he faced affliction and as he faced opposition um, while he was leading the church in Ephesus. There are four things that God wants to remind you of. So here's the first one this morning. The first one is simply this. In Christ, you have a rich spiritual heritage to establish you. In Christ, you have a rich spiritual heritage to establish you. See, in the first seven verses, Paul reminds Timothy of one of the blessings of salvation, and he, this is the blessing of a great past. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given a new past. You've been grafted into God's kingdom. You've been given the blessing of this past because now your roots, your, your line, your lineage can be traced all the way back to King Jesus. See, and Paul understood that it goes all the way back to Jesus. That's why he opens up his letter this way, because his greeting proves this. Look, verses 1 and 2. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul opens his letter by identifying himself as someone who was called by God and someone who was sent by God to proclaim the message of the gospel. Uh, what Paul ca calls here the message that brings life, the message that brings true life. It's a life that Paul experienced himself to the deepest parts of his being. And it's a life that he knew would carry him right through the doorway of death into the 
eternal, blissful embrace of Jesus. So he says to Timothy in the first two verses, Timothy, you're my son. You're my child in Christ. I'm reaching out to you with the same gospel that I taught you, the gospel that showers you with an abundant supply of God's grace and mercy and peace. And then he goes on in verses three and four. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. You could see just the personal tone that this letter takes, so different from uh, 1 Timothy. But what, one of the things that really struck me here in these verses is Paul's ability to say so confidently of himself that he serves God with a clear conscience, a clear conscience. See, remember, before Paul was Paul the apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus, right? He was a religious extremist who persecuted Christians, the earliest Christians. He invaded their homes. He dragged off the believing uh, Christian men and women to prison. He forced them to renounce their faith, and he even orchestrated the execution of some of the early Christians. But then this bloodthirsty religious predator has a most magnificent conversion, and he embraces entirely the forgiveness of Jesus on that road to Damascus. The floodgates of God's grace overflow into his life, and he becomes living proof of the transforming power of the gospel to take the foulest of sinners and turn him into a faithful servant. So let this serve as an encouragement to you that nothing you've done in your past, nothing disqualifies you from God's kingdom. Please understand that. No crime you've committed will keep you from God's kingdom. No sinful passion that you've indulged will prevent you from being used for God's good purposes. No addiction that you're battling will ban you from the realm of God's acceptance. There's nothing you've done that Jesus has not already forgiven, and there's nothing that anyone did to you that God cannot take and use for your good and for his good purposes. So you can embrace the love and forgiveness of Jesus, and you can live for God with the freedom of a clear conscience. Because now your heritage goes right back to the cross where the old you was crucified with Jesus, where you were given a new life, a life that finds its source in Jesus himself. The song reminded me of this passage earlier in the week, driving, um, there was a Bayside Kids trip to Sight and Sound to go see Moses. So driving the, the church van, there was like 35 of us total. I was taking 15 of us in the church van. And on the way back, we put on some of the um, VBS songs for the kids that were in our van. Uh, then the VBS songs were done, and I hear Elizabeth, my seven-year-old, call up to her front, Daddy, play Flawless. What? Play Flawless. By mercy me. So I pass my phone to Laura. She pulls it up on Amazon Music, and the, the song starts playing. And it was a song I heard before, but I never actually heard before. Um, because now, all of a sudden, Elizabeth is mentioning it. You know, it's my daughter. I, I want to know what she's listening to. Listen to the word. I just want to read the words to the chorus. It says, no matter the, br- the bumps, no matter the bumps, no matter the bruises, no matter the scars, still the truth is... The cross has made you flawless. No matter the hurt, 
And then he says, no matter the hurt or how deep the wound is, no matter the pain, still the truth is the cross has made you flawless. So Paul goes on in verse five and he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. See, Paul knew Timothy was over there in Ephesus facing some anxieties, going through some times of affliction. So he keeps pointing Timothy back to his spiritual heritage. He's saying, Timothy, you're so blessed to have been raised by such a godly mother, such a God-fearing grandmother. Like a family heirloom, this priceless gift of faith has been passed down to you. It's been nurtured and, and cultivated within you. Timothy, so don't be encouraged. Don't be dismayed. I've seen you grow in Christ, and I've watched you soak up God's truth like a sponge. You become a, free, a fruitful and faithful leader for God's kingdom. So, Timothy, remember your roots. Remember the cross. Remember your mom and grandma. Remember me. And he goes on in verses 6 and 7. He says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. See what Paul is communicating here to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, I know things are difficult for you. I get that. I'm aware that others might see you as physically weak, relatively young, and personally timid. But remember, Timothy, you can't function on your own willpower. You can't function on your own strength. You need to operate out of the Holy Spirit in you. Don't forget, Timmy, when you were saved, the Holy Spirit gave you those spiritual gifts to be used for building the church. Use those gifts. Exercise them as you step out in faith to use them. Watch as God fans their flame into a gospel blaze. And he says, Timothy, don't shrink back in fear. Don't coast on raw talent. Don't become a passive man of God. The spirit who gifted you is the spirit who gives you all the courage you need to face your fears and your afflictions. So depend on him and he'll breathe his power and his love and his self-control in you. See, when difficulty comes knocking at your door, Christian, you need to make sure that you take hold of all that is yours in Christ. Remember that part of the salvation package that God handed to you when you declared Jesus as Lord and Savior, part of that salvation package includes the blessing of a great past. Your faith has a rich spiritual heritage. Yes, Timothy's uh, faith, the seeds of his faith were planted in his childhood under his roof which is a sobering reminder to all of us parents of how vital it is to saturate our homes with the gospel. But even if the seeds of your faith were planted later in life, remember that at the cross, your past converges with the past of every single saint who has gone before you. So when you feel alone in your suffering, Think of all the saints and the martyrs whose blood, prayers, and tears have paved the way before you. When you feel overwhelmed in your affliction, think of the Savior who set the example of endurance through suffering, and he promises to empower you in suffering. When you feel too broken 
We're too weak or too ordinary to take that next step to follow whatever God's next step is for you. Remember what God did with people like Paul and Timothy. Remember that God wants to mend your broken mess of a past and turn it into a masterpiece, one step at a time. Remember that God's power will be made perfect in your weakness, one prayer at a time. Remember that God will do something extraordinary and supernatural through your simple and ordinary dependence on him, one choice at a time. In Christ, you can face affliction with courage. You have the blessing of a great past, a rich spiritual heritage to establish you, and you have the blessing of a great power, because now Paul says, in Christ, you have the life of Jesus to empower you. In Christ, you have the life of Jesus to empower you. So in verses 8 through 12, Paul encourages timid Timothy with two things. Number one, he reminds him of uh, of the power of Jesus in the gospel. And number two, he rehearses uh, essentially the content of the gospel for him. So he starts in verse 8. He says, therefore, Timothy, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So he's saying, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed to risk your reputation, to risk your comfort, to risk your freedoms, to risk even your life for the sake of the gospel. Verse 9, he says, the gospel by the power of God, verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So it's like Paul is telling his protege here, hey, Timothy, don't forget the powerful God behind the gospel, the one behind our salvation, right? He's powerful enough to save you and to work through you. And he's uh, he's so eternally personal in his love for you. He says, even before God laid the foundations of the earth, he set his heart on us. Before he called into existence anything that is, he predetermined to call us his children. Why? Well, Paul says to Timothy, it's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your religion. It's not because of your good intentions, but because of God's overflowing grace. He says, it's not because of your church attendance. It's not because of your accomplishments, but because God's good purpose and grace became manifest in Jesus Christ. Verse 10, he says this, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Who did what? Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. So he's saying here, Timothy, God's eternal purposes have dawned upon us, like the sun breaking through in the morning. He's saying by the appearing of Jesus Christ, abundant life and eternal life now blaze forth like a supernova on earth. He's saying Jesus shattered the the chains of death when he rose victorious from the grave. And because Christ lives in you, you will also live beyond the grave. Isn't it amazing, Timothy, the privilege we have to be entrusted with such a great message of hope, even when the message lands us in trouble? As it did for Paul, verse 12, he says, which is why I suffer as I do. 
but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So he's saying here, the gospel got me in trouble, but there's no shame in that. It doesn't matter what comes my way, Paul is saying, because I know who holds me fast in his hands. I'm fully convinced in his ability to save me, to seal me, to hide me, to protect me, to secure me up until that very day when Jesus returns. See, in a nutshell, these verses remind the believers of one of the blessings of the gospel, that we have the blessing of a great power. As followers of Christ, we have the power of Jesus, the life of Jesus that energizes us, that works through us to confront every challenge, to meet every fear, and to face every affliction with courage. And this is a truth that should humble us. It should move us to deep gratitude. As we reflect on what we once were, rotten and wretched sinners who were ransomed, and redeemed by God's sheer mercy. As we think about that, we should be stirred to devote our lives that much more fully to Jesus. Not with any pretense of personal merit, but with a God-dependent and a grace-fueled passion. And remember that this great power is what gives you boldness as you stand for truth in a world that hates truth. So don't let fear cause you to shrink back from shining for Jesus. Don't let the risks of discomfort or disapproval prevent you from being a bold witness for Jesus. Don't hide your faith from your colleagues or your family. Don't let shame muzzle your witness. Don't become shy about the countercultural claims of Jesus. The world needs the hope of the gospel. You have the very spirit of Jesus that raised him from the dead. That same spirit is the one who empowers you. His resurrection life flows through your veins through grace. In Christ, you can face affliction with courage. You have the blessing of a great past, a rich spiritual heritage to establish you. You have the blessing of a great power. You have the life of Jesus himself to empower you. And you have the blessing of a great promise. Because now we see that in Christ, you have the word of God to equip you. In Christ, you have the word of God to equip you. So in verses 13 and 14, Paul reminds Timothy to stay faithful to the scriptures. He says that in the next two verses. He says, Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. See, Paul knew that one of the ways that Timothy would be able to withstand opposition was by anchoring himself in the scriptures. See, here when he says to follow the pattern of the sound words, what he's talking about here is uh, uh, the blueprint or framework for the gospel. See, through years of discipleship and mentorship under Paul, Timothy was given a a solid theological framework to build his life upon, to build his ministry upon, to build his leadership on. And see, Paul must have known 
He must have known from firsthand experience that when you're experiencing persecution, when you're experiencing opposition from those who find Jesus offensive, there might be a temptation to kind of take that message, water it down a little bit, and make it a little more palatable, which is probably why Paul reminds Timothy to keep following the pure, unadulterated truth, to stay faithful to that truth. And this is a reminder that we all need. So how are you doing with following the pattern of the sound words of Scripture? Are you easily distracted by the self-help philosophies of our day? Do you find your doctrine easily slipping into a place of confusion? Do your Theological foundations shake every single time there's a new global crisis? Or do you intentionally anchor yourself to sound biblical teaching through a life group or a Bible study? Do you regularly steep your mind in scripture through undistracted times of speaking to God in prayer and uninterrupted times of listening for God in his word? God has given us his inspired, inerrant word to reveal himself to us, to seal in writing his redemption throughout history, to comfort us, to teach us, to guide us, to equip us, to correct us, to encourage us. For everything that we need of life, he's given us his word. So we're urged to follow the pattern of the sound words of the gospel. And then he says, guard the good deposit of the gospel. In other words, we're guarding something. We're stewards of a timeless truth that has already been revealed. We're not inventors of a new truth. Like bankers, we protect this priceless deposit from bad investments and from spiritual fraud that will try to devalue it or discredit it. But we're reminded in verse 14 that both following the scriptures and guarding the scriptures, both of those are ultimately works of grace, meaning those are things that we can't do in our own strength because it's only by the Holy Spirit's presence. It's only by his illumination that we'll find ourselves equipped for the temptations and the sufferings that we'll encounter. So God makes his word available to us so we would be equipped for every good work, even the good work of suffering for Jesus. In Christ, you can face affliction with courage. You have the blessing of a great past, a rich spiritual heritage to establish you. You have the blessing of a great power. You have the life of Jesus himself to energize and empower you. And you have the blessing of a great promise. You have the word of God to equip you. And then the final thing we see in this passage is that you have the blessing of a great people. You have the family of saints to encourage you. You have the family of saints to encourage you. So in verses 15 to 18, Paul reminds Timothy of some of the people who abandoned him, but he also tells them of at least one person who greatly encouraged him. So he says in verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. So Paul's doing here is he's using himself as the case in point example. 
He's reminding Timothy by pointing to his own situation that preaching the gospel faithfully often results in suffering for the gospel. And suffering for the gospel is lonely business. So Paul says, Timothy, you know all about the men in our church, the men in the church who left me, who abandoned me. They abandoned their posts when I was arrested. You remember uh, flatulence and Hermione over there. Thanks. They're not good dudes, so I figured I could pick on them. They messed with Paul. But he's saying, Timothy, God always preserves a remnant of faithful brothers and sisters to uplift you, to strengthen you in your greatest time of need. And then he says, here's an example of this kind of brother, Timothy, verse 16. He says, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. See, while some fell away and abandoned Paul, others refreshed him. Other people encouraged him. Onesiphorus refreshed Paul in his isolation by seeking him out and by visiting him when he was in prison. He embraced Paul in his darkest hours, reminding Paul that Paul was not forgotten. Verses 17 and 18, he says, But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. See, when Onesiphorus first gets to Rome, realize he can't just uh, you know, Google um, dungeons in Rome where Christians are on death row. That's not a thing. He's actually got to go and he's got to go search and do a lot of searching. And he's trying to keep a low profile because he doesn't want to be associated necessarily. He doesn't want to you know, get thrown in there and get executed himself. So finding one prisoner in a sea of, of captives is a pretty big deal. It's daunting. But this guy's love for Paul propelled him to exhaust every option until Paul was found. He wasn't worried about his time. He wasn't worried about his reputation because he loved Jesus and he loved Paul. He was a, a loyal friend whose encouragement spanned time and geography. And his faithfulness over the long haul meant a lot to Paul. And what a beautiful picture here that we have then of the family of saints supporting and encouraging each other. And what a motivation this is for those of us living in quite a lonely world. Right? The world has never been more uh, technologically connected than it is now. But study after study after study reveals that people have never experienced greater levels of loneliness and isolation than they do now. In our hyper-individualized culture, deep relationships are often endangered. Even in the church, faith is seen increasingly as just a private, hey, this is a between me and Jesus thing. This has nothing to do with you. Get your nose out of my business. This has nothing to do with what happens with me and Jesus in my living room on Sundays. So we neglect the blessing of belonging to an actual spiritual family the way God intended. We sacrifice Commitment to community for comfort and for convenience. But Paul's situation in prison is a powerful reminder to stop viewing church as like an optional product to consume. Church isn't an optional product to consume. See, what church is, according to scripture, it's an essential family that you covenant with, that you commit to and do the work of the ministry 
with, alongside. Our faith was never meant to be lived in isolation. We're never meant to journey the Christian life alone. We need each other profoundly, especially when affliction comes, especially when stress and crisis hit. The steadfast support and encouragement of other believers, it fortifies us for whatever the journey ahead is. So what saint can you be an encouragement to today? Who can you encourage this day? What isolated soul can you refresh with your presence? What defeated person can you encourage with biblical truth? Go ahead and step out of your comfort zone and be the hands and feet and voice of Jesus to someone else. Refresh someone in a dark place with your love and with your compassion and with your prayers and remain faithful to that person over the long haul through all their seasons of life. Seek out opportunities for fellowship. Fan the flame of each other's gifts and spur one another to walk faithfully with Christ. And here's the other thing. Don't ever forget that the same blood of Jesus that runs through your veins by grace is the same blood of Jesus that runs through my veins through grace. So when you suffer, we all suffer. When you rejoice, we all rejoice. That's how God designed the body to function. So open your eyes to see the true siblings that Christ has strategically placed all around you. In Christ, you can face affliction with courage. You have the blessing of a great past, rich spiritual heritage to establish you. You have the blessing of a great power, the life of Jesus himself that empowers you. You have the blessing of a great promise, the word of God to equip you, and you have the blessing of great people. You have the family of saints to encourage you. So I want to end how I opened. I said, final words carry weight. And they do. Some of the last words of Jesus to his whole group of disciples were the night he was betrayed less than 24 hours before he was crucified. Listen to those words. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 11 when he talks about that evening that Jesus instituted the new covenant with the Last Supper. Listen, he says, he says this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. I'm just going to read it, and then we'll partake in a minute. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. See, some of the weighty final words of Jesus was his commandment to us to observe his sacrifice, to observe his resurrection, to observe his promise to return again, all through what we call communion. So before we partake of the elements, let me just close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We're so grateful 
Lord, that even before the foundations of the earth were a thing, you knew each one of us by name. Lord, in every single one who's a believer, you called by name. God, we thank you for your call. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that none of this, we recognize that none of this would be possible if it wasn't for the eternal Son of God taking on human flesh and being born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, living the perfect life that he lived, fulfilling hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, dying the sacrificial death that we deserve to die, and then three days later, claiming victory through his resurrection, thus defeating sin and death. That is the gospel, and we thank you for that gospel. And Lord, thank you that all the implications of that you want to work in and through us. Lord, so we acknowledge that if it was not for the death and resurrection of your son, we would be absolutely and totally lost. But we thank you that we're not because of what Jesus did. We pray these things in his name. Amen.